Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. As hundreds of thousands of New York City public school students prepare to return to their classrooms for the upcoming school year, the city has established comprehensive, but in some cases controversial, policies and protocols intended to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Welcome to the Staten Island Advances from the Scene, a podcast bringing you an inside look at the biggest stories on Staten Island with the reporters who cover them. I'm your host, Eric Bascom, and this week I'm joined by education and community news reporter Annalise Knudsen to discuss the upcoming school year as all New York City public schools prepare to reopen fully for in-person instruction amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Thanks for joining me today, Annalise. You know, as the education reporter, some people might think that in the summer months, it's a lot less busy for you. But uh, as you well know, and I know that that's not really the case. So what's it like covering the education beat while schools are closed for summer vacation? Well, usually summers are pretty quiet, but we're talking pre-COVID. So when we think about summers being quiet, it's we're talking 2019, before 2019. And the last few years have been very hectic. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the coronavirus hasn't stopped. And that means that schools need to continue to prepare for the new school year. The second that this past school year was done, even during the last school year, they ha- there have been conversations about what is September going to look like? How are these new variants that are coming out going to affect what school will look like? And that has a lot to do with, with mask wearing, testing, social distancing, and things like that. So it's been busy and it hasn't stopped since March, 2020. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The The past two school years have kind of just felt like one long, giant COVID school year. As you said, like even in the months off, you're still planning ahead to what's, what's coming next. You don't really have a chance to breathe, it feels like, on a lot of this stuff. So, But that actually leads us into, you know, I mean, this is what we're going to be talking about today, right? So last time we had you on, we spoke about how hectic last school year was between the remote learning and all the full school closures and everything else that was going on. This year is going to be a little different now that the city has removed that remote learning option and all New York City public school students are going to be returning to their classrooms for in-person instruction starting Monday, September 13th. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to bring you back on, let families know what they can expect during the coming school year, how it's going to be a little different than what we saw last year. And, you know, like you mentioned, for much of the summer, it was, you know, kind of scrambling to figure out information. It was actually pretty unclear what the what the schools were going to look like when they reopened. But thankfully, during the last week of August, Mayor de Blasio and the Department of Education released this new handbook about 13 pages long, providing somewhat limited but useful information about the upcoming year. Can you give us a general overview of the handbook and what we saw in there before we start to dive deeper into each topic? Yes, so the DOE finally released the 13-page handbook, as you mentioned, and it details what students and school staff and families can expect when their kids go back to school. And it was the first time that parents and families were able to get that information since May when the city announced that there would be no remote option, there would be no hybrid option. 
At that time, we already knew masks were going to be required. We knew that testing would continue. We knew that social distancing was still going to be in use at that point. And if you remember back in May, things were looking good in terms of the coronavirus. Like we were not seeing as many cases. So a lot of people were wondering at that point, were there going to be masks or not? What what will testing look like? And we've seen the last few months that things keep changing. But this was the, the handbook was the first time we've seen information about the COVID testing, how that would work. So we know that that's going to be continuing on a biweekly basis. As of right now, the state released something that they want schools to be doing it weekly. But the city keeps saying that they're going to continue to do it biweekly as part of their plan. So we'll see what happens with that. And it was the first time we got information about what the quarantine policies would look like, which is a really big deal. It was going to allow us to see how often schools would close, which was a really hot topic last school year. So a lot of the same but a lot different from what we saw last year. Yeah, and and one thing you mentioned there that we'll touch on later at different points, but I thought was interesting to note is the differences between the state guidance and the city guidance. And we've seen this throughout the pandemic on on a, you know a multitude of things, not just education, where the state is saying one thing, but the city says no, 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 we actually are going to implement these stricter guidelines, or or vice versa. And then it's kind of confusing, and people are like, why do we have to do this, but other people don't? So we'll we'll get to that in in some of the later sections here. But I just thought that that was interesting to to point out off the bat because because that has definitely been a recurring theme throughout much of this pandemic. So, but, you know, getting back on track, let's talk about masks, which is something you mentioned as well. Uh, It's been a big point of contention for many families, particularly those with young children who are kind of concerned about the kid's ability to wear it all day. Are they going to be comfortable? Is it going to, you know, whatever it might be. So you mentioned that masks are going to be required during the upcoming school year, but there are going to be certain cases where kids are going to be able to take those masks off, right? What what is that going to look like? Well, from what I've read in the handbook, students, school staff, teachers, everyone has to wear a face mask while on school property. And in the handbook, I believe it says that that would include indoors, obviously, which we we figured, but also outdoors. So assuming that that's the case, if students are using outdoor learning spaces or they're going to spend a lunchtime out there or physical education and things like that, The assumption right now is that students would have to wear a mask at all times, as well as uh, school staff. And that includes for everyone who's vaccinated. So regardless of your vaccination status, you're going to have to wear a face mask. And that was something that the entire country is basically doing right now, for, for most of the country, I should say. But they can be removed during lunchtime, so we know that students will be able to eat lunch normally. And because of that, there will be a little bit more distance than normal. And there's also something they're calling a mask break, which we saw last school year. So if a student is feeling, maybe they're feeling a little bit warm or they feel like they can't breathe too much, they can step out of the classroom, they can take off their mask when they're not near anyone else, and they can just take a breath and then they can go back to class and and continue that. Yeah, and that's got to be, I mean, I couldn't really imagine being in school for a full school day, right? You're six, seven hours, whatever it might be. And the only times that you can take off your mask are during lunch and one of these mask breaks. But besides that, I mean, you're talking about, like I said, six, seven hours straight of wearing this mask, which, 
you know, is a lot, especially for, as we mentioned, some of the younger kids. And there's been parents who were upset about it. And but it, it just seems that this is what it's going to be. I mean, it, they did it last year. It worked. And so they're going to keep it going. I don't really blame them for that. But I, I imagine it's got to be quite burdensome on the on the teachers and the students um, to an extent. But so let's move on. Like last year, all the students and staffers are going to be required to complete these daily health screenings in order to be allowed into their school buildings. Uh, what do those entail and, and what happens if someone doesn't complete their screening but they still show up for school? So before every school day, students and staff will have to complete this daily health screening and it basically is um, just some questions that uh, ask you about have you experienced any symptoms of COVID? Have you taken a temperature and it was above 100.3? If you've been near contact with anyone that had COVID, if you should be quarantining, and I guess places where there's high transmission rates, different countries, if you went on vacation, let's say, and you came back. It also asks questions about vaccination. I don't know if that's changed since then because I know a lot of it is regardless of vaccination status considering the Delta variant. and. Everyone has to submit it before they come into school. It's a, it's a virtual thing. You can do it on your phone, or if you can't get it on your phone, you would have to hand in a paper form. And that's for everyone. So if you're trying to get into a school building, and this goes for staff, school uh, students, visitors even, every time I visited a school, I would have to fill it out. So you can't physically enter a school unless you have that form in your hand or you're showing it to someone. So if you don't have it, they're going to tell you, okay, you're going to have to fill this out and they're going to give you the QR code or they're going to give you the piece of paper. So you won't be able to physically enter that building unless you have it. And if you don't have it, and I guess if you don't want to complete it, then you can't, you can't go in the school building. All right. So moving on, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what is the city's plan in regards to this physical distancing or social distancing or whatever we want to call it on this point? Because the guidance here was a a bit ambiguous, saying that the schools should try to maintain a safe distance between students, but that that shouldn't prevent them from accommodating all students if they can't keep a safe distance. So so how is this whole thing going to work? The DOE's plan for social distancing is strictly from the CDC's school reopening guidance. And that guidance recommends that students be at least three feet apart from each other and from staff as well. But it shouldn't prevent a school from being able to open and accommodate all those students. So from the DOE's perspective, they're having schools do everything they can to get those three feet of distance between students at the school. And there's a lot of schools in across the five boroughs and in Staten Island that are overcrowded, and we know that. And for those schools, they're going to try to do their best to social distance. Again, if they can't, they still are able to open and still able to operate. What the DOE is relying on in this case, and this is what the um, United Federation of Teachers Union President Michael Mulgrew also explained to me, was that's why it's so important to have a mask mandate and to have a ton of other mitigation strategies to allow for that less than three feet of social distance. So if a school is not able to do that, at least they have the masks, at least they have the ventilation in their classrooms, at least the windows are open, and at least there's bi-weekly testing going on to ensure that people are as safe as possible. And in terms of those overcrowded schools, I, there's a few Staten Island schools that we know are overcrowded. They're trying to use their outdoor spaces as much as they can and taking advantage of that space. Uh, Curtis High School, for example, 
is doing a grab and go service in their cafeterias rather than having students sit maskless eating lunch. So those are just a few examples of how schools are trying to handle the social distancing. Every school is different. So schools, it's up to the schools to figure out what is it gonna look like in every classroom? What other spaces can they use to make sure they're social distancing as much as possible? Yeah, and you know, as a Curtis alum myself, I could not imagine them adequately social distancing in that school with just how many students there are. I mean, they do have the wing, the new wing now, so maybe that will help them a little bit, uh, a little extra space there. But I mean, it is just so crowded and those hallways there, you're lucky if you get three inches of space between students. So three feet, uh, not likely to happen in, in a lot of those cases. But let's move on to another hot topic from last school year, which was the city's in-school coronavirus testing program, which is designed to identify positive cases in the buildings by randomly testing a certain number of students and staffers each week or sorry every other week and so the program will remain in place this year but it's been adjusted in terms of who needs to be tested how many people being to be tested so can you walk us through this year's in-school testing program and and how it kind of differs from last year's yes so the doe is going to be continuing the regular coronavirus testing for school and staff in the school (laughs) for students and staff Um, And that goes for people who are not fully vaccinated. So if you're a a student that's fully vaccinated, you won't have to consent for testing in the school during that biweekly testing. The thing with the biweekly testing, which is different from last year, last year you had to consent to testing. And if you didn't consent, you would have to go fully remote. This year, without that remote option, as U of T President Mulgrew told me, parents have to consent. And if they don't consent, then a student wouldn't be tested. So it's a little bit different than last year. It doesn't mean you're gonna go fully remote and parents have to consent through a a form online. And we'll talk more, I'm assuming, about what would happen if there was a coronavirus case in a classroom. But in terms of what the state has been saying about testing, they announced last week that they're putting in executive order that every school and every district in the state would have to perform weekly testing in high transmissible areas. Under that logic, New York City would probably have to do weekly testing when the city was asked about it. They said they were continuing to follow their handbook rules that they would consent and do bi-weekly testing for now. And at this point, as of Wednesday, we don't know if the city will have to abide by the state at at this rate. So for right now, it's bi-weekly. Right. And it's also at this point just a very small percentage of the actual school community, right? Because we're talking about only people who are unvaccinated and it looks like all teachers are going to need to be vaccinated. So teachers aren't really going to be included. We'll we'll touch on that later as well. But not only does it need to be people who are unvaccinated, but their parents need to have consented to them being tested. And on top of that, it's only 10% of unvaccinated students whose parents have consented to them being tested. So when you really look at it that way, it seems like the program has been, I wouldn't say scaled back, but it's going to be a a much lower number of people being tested than than you might have expected than we saw last year. So that's interesting. But let's move on to what you mentioned, which is something I know that a lot of people are very curious about, which is what happens if a child's, if someone's child's classmate tests positive for the coronavirus? Are they going to need to quarantine? Are they going to need to go remote? Well, it turns out the answer is kind of complicated and, and varies depending on the student's grade level, their vaccination status. So 
Um, tell us a little more about that new quarantine policy and how it's going to affect some students differently than others. The quarantine policy, I believe, was the city's way to prevent as many school closures as possible, which happened a lot last year. So we know that kids under 12 can't get the coronavirus vaccine. They're not eligible yet. So in terms of that, if there is a positive case in a classroom in an elementary school, all students in the class will move to remote learning. They need to quarantine for 10 days and they'll receive live instruction through programs like Zoom or Google Classroom to continue that learning while they quarantine. Now, when we get to middle and high schools, it's a bit different. Like you mentioned, that's because there are students that are eligible to get vaccinated. So the benefit of getting a vaccine, if you go to a New York City public school, is that if you're vaccinated and you don't show symptoms of COVID, you're still going to go to school in person. So you're not going to miss out on any learning. You won't have to, I guess, do some remote learning from home without a teacher there. Dior Dorsey is a 16-year-old student who was vaccinated at Newdorp High School. I have mixed feelings because I'm afraid that everything's just going to be shut down again after we open it right up because certain people might get COVID. Same goes for students, I should say students that are 12 years old, vaccinated and showing symptoms a little different. They do have to quarantine for 10 days. I believe they said that they're able to test out if they're not showing symptoms anymore, and then they can come back in a certain time period, but they will have access to remote learning. For the middle and high schools, though, they won't get that live instruction like the elementary school level will have. So what the DOE would do is they would have teachers give remote learning materials to these students, and that's asynchronous learning. So it's basically completing assignments or tests or things like that on your own from home. So you're not getting that live instruction from your teacher. And when we talk about unvaccinated, it's the same thing. You have to quarantine for 10 days. This is where you can opt out with the test out option. So under the handbook, it's if kids can take a COVID-19 test on day five of quarantine, and if they have a negative result, they can come back to school after day seven for in-person learning. Yeah, so it's, like I mentioned earlier, a little bit complicated. So you've got people who are vaccinated and asymptomatic. Uh, They can just keep going to school. They've got no problems. If you are vaccinated and symptomatic, then you are going to transition to remote learning, uh, asynchronous, of course. And then if you're in elementary school, which means you can't be vaccinated, you will be quarantining for 10 days and receiving live synchronous instruction from your teachers. And then you've got the unvaccinated people who will also be forced to quarantine, but then have that option to test back in if they so choose. Um, Which, yeah, like I said, just a lot going on, just very complicated, but it's just another way that the city is trying to incentivize vaccinations as we've seen, you know, in in recent months. So uh, probably a, a good policy there. So As you mentioned, they're hoping that by testing people in the schools and by having these quarantines in certain situations that there will be fewer full school shutdowns than we saw last year, because we saw a lot of them, as you mentioned. Uh, But the city failed to provide any actual specific criteria for when a school would be shut down. So how are those decisions going to be made this year? and, And why is the city so confident that they'll see so many fewer closures than last year? 
I think to answer your last question, I think the reason why there won't be as many closures is based off the vaccination requirement for every DOE employee. Bottom line, there won't be cases, and if there are, it would be very far and few between in terms of cases in schools. And in terms of preparing for closures of school buildings entirely, I think the city didn't put anything out because they don't expect it to happen. Not saying they shouldn't have put anything out, but I feel like they always do everything. They're saying that everything will be on a case-by-case basis now. So if there's a positive coronavirus test in a classroom, the school would report it to that situation room that they created last year. And they would follow all the protocols. So who are we contacting? Who uh, was a close contact? Do we need to quarantine a whole classroom? Does one student need to quarantine? Things like that. So I think if, if it was a case of many, many cases in a school building alone that would require a school to close, the DOE hasn't said how many that would be. Um, and I just think it's because they don't think it's going to happen. I don't think they want it to happen, and I don't think it's going to happen because of the vaccination rates. The city and and the U of T has said that many of their school staff already were vaccinated, and I know that everyone has to get their first dose by the end of September. So, And then you think about all the kids that are 12 and over that are eligible and were able to get vaccinated, and a lot of students have gotten vaccinated. So I don't think it's going to be the case that we saw last year where we didn't have a vaccine, We were doing all of this COVID testing, I think, with this biweekly testing from the city, with all the mitigation strategies, with the vaccinations, I think everything layered together puts us in a very different position than we were last school year at the start. So when we talk about school closures, I don't think it's going to happen. It very well could. I don't think the DOE is planning for it to happen, though. Yeah. And and let's hope that we can avoid those as much as possible, just, you know, for the students, for the teachers. I mean, no one wants to have the whole school shut down, have to try and switch to remote again. I mean, it was such a nightmare last year. So anything we can do do to avoid that kind of stuff would be great. And, you know, you touched on this, um, you know, just a few minutes ago, but this vaccine requirement for the public school staff has been a real hot button issue in the past few weeks. Um, the city and the UFT have been kind of going back and forth on this. So last month, the city announced that all public school staff will be required to get vaccinated and just required to get vaccinated, essentially. For other city workers, they said you need to get vaccinated or you can test out of it every other week. You can get tested or every week, whatever it might be. You know, but teachers weren't given that option. And, you know, school staff in general, not just teachers, everyone needs to get vaccinated. They don't have an option of of testing out of it. You know, the union has been encouraging their members to get vaccinated, and they said that they've been doing a good job of it. They estimate that, you know, 80% of UFT teachers are are vaccinated already, but they've been frustrated by the city's unwillingness to provide any exceptions to the mandate. Our impact uh, bargaining negotiations with the city have gone to a very bad place, to say the least. Uh, There's been agreement to go to mediation immediately, uh, and we'll probably go to arbitration as uh, quite quickly uh, because it's clear that the suicide's very, very far apart in terms of how to deal with this vaccine mandate. Michael Mulgrew is the president of the United Federation of Teachers. What the city has done is really now causing us to start doing a legal challenge to everything that technically the Department of Health has ordered, not the mayor, but we all know it was the mayor who ordered it. So 
that's the position we are in at this moment. So where do we kind of stand on this issue and how could it impact the upcoming school year? So when the city first announced that vaccine requirement for all the city workers, like you said, it was either you get the vaccine, you get fully vaccinated, or you can test out by getting a negative COVID test every week. And at the time, the U of T was saying, this is a great this is a great thing for the city. It's a great thing for our members in the U of T because it allows for personal choice. And I think that's why when the city announced, okay, every single DOE employee has to get a vaccine, that would include custodians, that includes principals, assistant principals, teachers, every single person that works in a New York City school building would have to get the vaccine. And I think in a way it was off-putting for, for a lot of the unions that represent the people that work in schools. And it became to a point where the the unions were saying, we never discussed this. We never came to an agreement about what that would look like. And when Mayor Bill de Blasio was asked that when he made this announcement, he said, we're still talking, we're negotiating with our unions about this, about this new mandate. But even if they don't agree with it and we can't come to an agreement, that it would still happen. So I know, Eric, that you wrote the story last week that the UFT is, is trying for that mediation. And if, if the, an agreement doesn't come through, it would be an arbitration. So, you know, they're, they're coming at it as an approach of there's people that are medically unable to get the vaccine, whether that means that they're allergic to something that's in the vaccine, there would be more at risk if they got it, things like that. And then also that religious options. So those are the exemptions that they're trying to get for their members. And the city is saying, no, um, we're putting our foot down. There are going to be no exemptions. And that's why the UFT is, is taking this stand against the city on this. But again, like, like Bill de Blasio said, regardless of what the unions are saying or trying to do, it's still going to happen. So as of right now, every single DOE employee has to get that first dose by the end of the month. Yeah, and I know that there are certain DOE employees who are holding out in hopes that the UFT can win this legal battle or whatever it might be, and they won't be forced to get it. You know, people who are not vaccinated, who work in schools, who, you know, this requirement came out and they said, I'm going to wait until the last possible minute and see that I need to get this before, uh, you know, I go and do it. Because, you know, if someone is opposed to the vaccine for whatever reason, you know, they may have and they don't want to get it. And now you're telling them they need it for their job. Uh, you know, there are people who are going to ride it out and they're going to be in school for the first two weeks from the 13th to the 27th, unvaccinated, teaching your kids, doing whatever it might be. And then, you know, we'll see where the where the legal battle en- uh, ends, if they're going to need to get vaccinated eventually, if they're going to lose their job, if the city is going to lose an arbitration and suddenly the case, the whole policy will be thrown out. So it, it's definitely something to monitor in the coming weeks. Uh, and, and I think it is going to be very interesting to see kind of where we land with that. But all right, let's shift gears a little bit. So as you know, we also like to use these podcasts to give our listeners and our readers an opportunity to learn a little more about our reporters. So you've been the education reporter at The Advance for years now, but recently you stepped into a new role as an educator yourself, getting a job as as a professor at your alma mater. Uh, So what has that experience been like so far? I know it's just the beginning of the semester now, but and, and how has your time covering education helped you kind of prepare for this new chapter? So I had my first class last week, and I have to say it's 
it's a lot of work and I don't think people realize how much work that an educator puts into every single class, whether that's uh, in college, in high school, elementary, middle school, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a lot of work. And I actually come from a family of educators. My grandmother was a New York City public school teacher. My dad is currently one. My mom works in a school. So I've always known that it was going to be a lot of work. And then I started class and I realized how many hours after school that you put into. So it's not just the fact that you get the summers off or you get to end at 3 p.m. every day. It's a lot of behind the scenes work and you really have to realize that people who take this job don't take it because it's a job. Like they actually have to enjoy it because it's a lot of work. You're shaping the minds of young people and that's a lot of pressure as a person, especially me, I feel like I'm still young enough to be in college. I only graduated last year, but it's it's a lot of pressure to make sure that you're putting all of your energy into making every single class, you know, worth coming to class for. Like I want people to come here and enjoy it and and learn something. That's my biggest hope is that they leave learning something and that they're not afraid to come to class or they dread coming to class because I really hope they, do, they don't do that. But again, it's only been the first week, but I'm doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. And so, you know, just from one class, I can't say that like it's 100% like the best thing I've ever done. I know it's a lot of work up front. So I'm going to see how it goes and see how the semester goes. And hopefully it's, it's a good time and, and these kids can learn something. Yeah, well, knowing you and and your level of preparedness for all things that you do, I think that those kids are are very lucky to have you and they're going to learn a lot in those classes. So let's let's circle back now and let's wrap things up by looking forward to the rest of the school year. We talked about, you know, the start of the school year coming right around the corner, but it seems like the city has done a pretty good job, right? Getting all these safety measures in place. You talk about layering those different mitigation strategies, but with the coronavirus and, and more specifically the Delta variant and other variants still, you know, a major cause for concern. How do you think the city might have to adapt some of this stuff moving forward as the school year plays out? The When the city released the handbook, it came at um, with them saying this handbook is subject to change. Things can change as the coronavirus changes as variants come about as numbers rise or fall things are going to change and the handbook that means the handbook could change so testing if let's say if the state is mandating this testing and and if there's a lot of more cases in new york city the city might say okay we have to do testing every single week instead of bi-weekly so things like that i think would be something that changes again i think in terms of New York City's preparedness for their public schools, I think they're at probably one of the highest levels in terms of how they're strategizing kids coming back safely. We already know kids have to wear a face mask. That's indoors and outdoors, regardless of your vaccination status. There's schools across the countries, a country that don't have mask mandates. So when you put into the perspective of they're taking all the recommendations from the CDC, and they're going a step above, in my opinion. I think they're going a step above and try to, trying to make sure everyone's safe, make sure the schools don't close. I think that's bottom line. Do everything you can if it means kids can stay in school. And I know it's been a very controversial topic in terms of having kids wear masks all day like we were talking about before. And I 
I know we're talking about public schools here, but I covered first day of Catholic schools. And when I spoke to a parent, she said, you know, I'm not really happy about the mask mandate. She was like, but if it means my kid gets to come to school and to see his friends and he's so thrilled to be here, then it doesn't matter. So I think in terms of when we think about kids coming back to school, I know parents are upset and I know that there are things that they're not going to enjoy or, or like for their kid. But the bottom line is, is that I think everyone wants their kids back in school for the most part. And if that if that's what it takes and that's what it's going to take for most parents, just, you know, having their kids back. A lot of people have not been in school for the last 18 months. And we haven't really talked about the social emotional aspect, but that social emotional aspect is really important for kids being able to socialize with their friends, with their teachers, being in person, being able to ask questions by raising your hand instead of clicking a button on Zoom. So I think in terms of getting ready for school, I think the city has done everything they can at this point, and they haven't announced anything else since this handbook, so I think we're pretty much in good hands in terms of nothing changing before the first day. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it. Like you mentioned, it's super important for us to be able to get all of our kids back into school buildings and with their friends and with their teachers in person. Because like you mentioned, there are people who haven't been in school for almost two years now and they've just been, you know, learning on their computer, which is just not the way that it's meant to be. So thank you so much for joining us today, Annalise. It was a pleasure as always. And I look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Did you know the borough's first public high school, Curtis High School, opened over 115 years ago on February 9th, 1904? Thank you for listening to the Staten Island Advances from the scene. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit SILive.com for the latest on all these stories and more. Thank you for supporting local journalism.